a listener production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. There are some people who leave such an impression that you can remember the time and date when you first met. For me, my next guest is one of those people. Kate Ellis was elected to the federal parliament at the age of 27 and was quickly promoted to the ministry. When I first met Kate, I was struck by how impressive she was. Not only was she warm, funny and likeable, she held her own wherever she went, speaking with substance, passion and authority beyond her years. Today, Kate is living a quieter life in Adelaide. Well, perhaps it's not that quiet. She is raising children. She's on the board of the Adelaide Crows and the author of a best-selling book, Sex, Lies and Question Time. Kate Ellis, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you for having me. I've got to start by asking you, there's a new Labor government in South Australia and in Canberra. What does that mean to you, if anything at all? What are you feeling at the moment? Um, Well, I'm trying not to turn off your listeners that might be of a different political (laughs) persuasion of me from the first question. Um, (laughs) But I will say, I I think it's nice when your government represents your values. I just love that there's a focus on the issues that are important to me, whether it's particularly early childhood, but women's issues, you know, climate change. I like my children growing up with a government that more closely aligns to the values that I'm trying to teach them. I think that's really nice and quite special. So that's the good bit, but is there any pangs of like, oh, what if only, should I have run in state parliament because I could have held a ministry? Like, <laughs> like, do you must kind of watch the swearing-in ceremonies and see a portfolio that you've always had a passion for? You know, I I had a couple of conversations with my husband saying, oh, imagine that I might have been being sworn in as a cabinet minister today. But it was a it was a talking point. It wasn't regret. Um, I'm really grateful for the experiences that I got and the privilege that I had to represent my local community and Australia but I made the right choice for me and I I have zero regrets about that. Were you surprised that women voters made their feelings so well known in the federal election? I wasn't surprised, Helen, but I was absolutely inspired. I think lots of us could feel that there was something changing, that Australian women went from being frustrated to angry, to, oh, well, we're just going to have to fix this ourselves. And the fact that Australian women stood up at the last election, you know, right across the country in electorates of 
traditionally different political persuasions and said, you know, you're not cutting the mustard, we're going to stand up, we're going to do it ourselves and voted to bring about change, I find so inspiring. Like I, I, I feel like this is the beginning. Australian women have sent the strongest message, like don't mess with us. If you're not going to look after us, we will stand up, push you out of the way and do it ourselves. And I think it's amazing. I'm, I'm so heartened by it. it. It was a real moment in time. And I feel, Kate, like I've been around a long time, so I'm not particularly Pollyanna. Like I, I know that there's a, <laughs> that politics often reverts to the old, but there is a real sense both here in South Australia where um, we both are today and in the eastern states around the sense that women are now genuinely at the centre of uh, policy debates in a way that, you know, they, they really never have been and certainly in a way that they weren't in the federal election campaign. Do you worry that you're just like getting a bit too excited and it's going to go away or do you think it really is here to stay? Well, maybe I am Pollyanna and maybe <laughs> I always have been. That is an accusation that has been labelled upon me several times that I'm overly idealistic. But I have faith that this is something real and lasting because I think back to those, the marches for justice, like, you know, Grace Tame stood up, Brittany Higgins has come forward, women across Australia have come out and marched in the streets. And I distinctly remember being at one of those protests and looking around, and I'm someone who you know, I love a good protest. I'll go to a rally for anything, um, and I always have done. But I remember looking around and... <laughs> Jamila always tells me that too. She's always going, oh, I'm always protesting. Oh, yeah. I'm the non-protester. You're the protester. Give me, Got it. Give me yep. a placard and I'm there. But I looked around and I was really moved. Like, it was obvious this was something different. This was women of all different backgrounds, of all different views, um, of all different ages who had all come together, the best way I can describe it was it seemed like it was like a communal grief. People were thinking about things that had happened to them in their lives or happened to their friends or their sisters or their mothers, and it was coming together, reflecting upon the worst things that had happened in their lives and saying, no, together we're going to change this and make it different. And to me at the time, it felt different to any protest, any rally I'd ever been involved in. And perhaps that came home to me when um, later that week we had a family dinner and my mother-in-law, who I suspect has not been to as many protests or rallies as I have, and maybe not any, said to me, oh, I wish I'd known about it because I would have been there too. And it just showed that you know, the, the breadth of the background of... These were women who had nothing in common except an anger about the way we've been treated for too long. And that's real and that's not going away. And I think those women won't let it go away. So I think the message is not just we want more women in the parliament. It's a clear warning to the men in the parliament. It's time to start not just listening but acting or else you'll be gone next election too. I think it's awesome. Yeah, and we're definitely going to see the the ramifications of that. I want to say to you congratulations on the book. It is such a great read. Firstly, to understand 
a bit around your experience as a leader in your 20s. Many of the listeners of this podcast are young women embarking on their leadership journey. Um, And you were an MP in Canberra at the age of 27. How much of your experience do you think was about age and how much of it was about gender? I think it's really hard to differentiate um, for a couple of reasons. Like to the listeners today, this was different. This was almost 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, it was really easy to devalue the contributions of women in politics and it was really easy to devalue the opinions and abilities of young people in politics. And I came in as both. So, you know, I do think there's value in self-reflection, thinking about why do people judge me harshly? Is there something I should be doing better? But more so than that, I actually think you can't spend too much time reflecting and trying to analyse, you know, why don't they like me when that energy could be better put into trying to prove people wrong and working hard to earn your worth, I guess. So um, I I don't know. It's one of the things, I don't know why, but I think I've been pretty good at not taking criticism to heart or not reflecting on it constantly because you just wouldn't be able to get up and face the national media or the federal parliament or your portfolio stakeholders if you reflected on it all the time. So I think, well, I was going to say the short answer, but it's probably long already, is um, it was both. And and it was probably more than both. It was probably that I was young. It was that I was a woman. You know, I think people get judged on their appearances a lot. Uh, I was thinking back to a time when I was in year eight at school and um, a boy said to me, oh, I just thought you'd be a real bimbo because you're smiling all the time, but you're actually smart. You know, people (laughs) make judgments based on a whole range of things. And I think you just have to concentrate on what you do and try and put it aside. That ability to not take things to heart, I find fascinating because it's really a key component of success, particularly as you go towards senior leadership roles, you have to be able to do that. As a politician, you're in the media, you're on stage effectively. What about you was able to do that? Because I have to say personally, that's the one thing about going into parliament that would most terrify me is um, just constantly being criticised. Yeah, I I don't know, Helen. We might have to get a psychologist in the room (laughs) to help analyse that. But I I do know... Um, It's something that I did before politics. Like, I I, I have thought about this a little bit and I thought Julia Gillard spoke a lot about resilience and where she got it from and I tried to think about that a bit. And, like, I remember when I was at high school and it wasn't necessarily an easy time at high school. At one stage I remember the, the side of our school wall had printed in spray paint, K.E. Sucks, and um, one of the teachers brought me in and she was like, are you okay? Do you know who did this? This is bullying. We'll go after them. And I honestly didn't know who did it and I didn't think about it. Like I didn't go home thinking who was that that hates me so much they spray painted it on the wall. I think I've just always had this ability to, I don't know, focus on 
I beat myself up and that hurts more. If other people beat me up, I'm fine with that and I just don't take it on board. I, I don't know how or why that happens, but that's one of my personality traits. What advice do you have for someone who's, who burns bright from an early age? Because that's a different type of challenge. It's about determining your own success. So don't let other people judge your success or your worth. It's about working out what are your indicators because I, I think that there are a lot of people who will consciously or unconsciously underestimate you, undermine you, maybe belittle you. You know, I don't know whether, you know, you were young in journalism, you are young, Helen, I didn't mean <laughs> were. Um, but whether you got the, hey, Helsey, come over here, because I used to get the, you know, I was an elected member of parliament and some of the older members of parliament would refer to me as Katie and, hey, Katie, I can teach you about this or that. Um, so it's about not letting them determine your self-worth, like judge your self-worth on, in my case, it was, am I engaging with my community? Um, am I getting my policy priorities met? Setting your own judgment and not giving that power to other people is really important when you're young because they will judge you. And if you let them, they'll determine your self-worth. And that is the most dangerous thing, I think, for a young leader. Um, many of the listeners will know that I work with Jamila Rizvi, who, of course, worked with you as well. She tells a great story. And if you're interested, there's a whole episode with her about being a young leader as well, because she's had um, an exceptional career too. She tells a whole story about being a staffer for you and getting in the com car, ready to go to a meeting, and the car would just sit there. <laughs> Yeah, and until you'd sort of go, um, excuse me, are we are we going? And they go, yes, when the minister gets here. Mm. That used to happen regularly, and it's not their fault. They had an idea of what a minister looked like, what their background was, and I didn't meet it. But that would happen. I'd get in the car, and they'd assume that I was the staff member, and say, how long till the minister gets here? It used to happen, like more times than I could count when I got to Parliament House, there's a different entrance for members of Parliament than there is for staff and there's another one for the public. And I'd go to enter through the Member of Parliament entrance and they'd direct me, no, 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 the staff go in over there. And those kind of things happen so regularly. Like they can, that's what I mean, like they can dent your confidence if you're not absolutely clear on what your purpose is and how you're going to judge yourself, then I think things like that just eat away. And it does to some extent anyway. Like people are constantly letting you know that you're not the norm, that you're not what they expected, and you're not what a member of parliament's meant to look like or act like or be like. You know, it's just a, a constant little thing that you come up against. But I don't want to sound like I'm woe is me because... I look at the parliament now and I think it's different. And you're in South Australia. You saw the South Australian parliament today. Yes. And it is young women, like young, confident, dynamic women. Like it's really, politics has changed since I was elected. And so I, I don't want to sound like this is a really depressing issue because I think it's actually, 
you know, this is an example of how things can progress and it has progressed and it will be better for the young women that are elected today and it will be even better for those in the future and we're just going to keep making it better. That's what that's what happens. Yeah, and look, I think I still think your broader point around centering yourself and being sure mm. of who you are um, is valuable, whether you're in parliament or just taken over a senior role in an organisation, even in an acting capacity, and everyone's like, oh, you know, she shouldn't really be in that role. I, I don't want to dwell on this because I reckon I find it as annoying as you do. Um, <laughs> I'm scared. But- <laughs> But how women look, right? So part of the thing with you wasn't just that you were young or that you were female. It was that you were tall and attractive and stood out for the media, which means there was extra pitfalls in terms of the way you were presented. Now, I have to confess, as Editor-in-Chief of Women's Weekly, um, you know, we dressed a lot of female politicians, some to great, you know, we did a really good, great job of it, sometimes not such a great job. I wasn't editor, with, wasn't the editor with the feather boa, <laughs> as I had to tell everybody. Um, but uh, when Cheryl Kerno was photographed in a red feather boa, but you were photographed in high heel shoes and it was a story Do you still feel some of that pressure today that there's an expectation about the way you look? Um, I don't because what I did was I went and got old and fat and like just, you know, completely standard looking. um, I'm just going to say to the listeners, I am on a Zoom with Kate. It's just up the road. Fatter, fatter (laughs) and older. Um, No, but I think what happened to me... So the person that has explained this best, I think, was Tanya Plibersek. And she once said to me, there's like this sweet spot. You don't want to be too pretty, too attractive, because then people think that you can't be credible. You don't want to be too dowdy, unattractive, boring, because then people write you off as not interesting. There's this sweet spot in the middle where you know, you just kind of medium, like you're not particularly noteworthy. And this probably isn't true for all professions, but in politics, when the media are looking for something to comment on, you get constant social media feedback. It is a thing that if you're at either of the ends, then you get a lot more feedback. And so if you're just kind of in the middle, normal, not particularly noteworthy, you can probably sail through a lot easier. And I think, sorry, I wasn't trying to um, be degrading to myself earlier, but I think I'm probably in the middle now and that's a really comfortable place to be because it's not something that anyone comments on. Like to have your appearance constantly commented on when you're not putting yourself up as a model or a celebrity, you're actually trying to promote ideas and policies is really distracting. And anyway, I think I've solved that problem for me. Yeah. I think it's. I think but, it has got better. I um, mm. to round that out because you know I, I don't think it's um, worth our time to spend a lot of time on it. You in the book mm. quite cleverly point out that Julie Bishop 
embraced the criticism eventually and just said, well, if they're going to criticise me for having an interest in fashion, I do have an interest in fashion. Um, so she turned it to an advantage ultimately and, you know, <laughs> it's probably now being sponsored to wear most of the amazing clothes that she wears. So I think that's about authenticity. I, I was about to say exactly the same thing. I think it's about being authentic, that um, you can't pretend to be something you're not. So if you're young and you know, you like pretty things or if you're focused on other things, be who you are and if you own it, you can own it. You can But Kate, what that. if you're like, some days you like it and some days you hate it, which is kind of my position. Some days I'm interested and other days I can't be bothered at all. Yeah. That's inconsistent. That's a problem. Well, I don't think it is a problem. I, I think you get to a point where you're judged on your achievements and your merits and you know, you're you're at that point. Julie Bishop was at that point. Like it's also about once you've established your credibility, you can do what you like. And there are other people like that. Like Linda Burney, I remember in my last couple of years in Parliament, I'd see her, you know, um, waltz into the Parliament with this cape flowing behind her and these amazing, like she could wear the most amazing things. And at first I thought if I wore that, I would be on the front page of every newspaper. But then I actually realised she's worked for decades. Like she is a superstar, you know, the first Indigenous woman um, elected to our House of Representatives. She's got the credibility. She can wear and look what she wants to because it's authentic and that's not what she's being judged on. One of the interesting issues that you explore is how women across the political divide can in some cases come together. And I'm talking to a Pollyanna person, so you go into the parliament, you've got women on both sides, you know, why can't we all get along? And I think it's such an interesting chapter because Tanya Blibersek points out, well, no, because I actually disagree with that person on policy grounds, she does bad things for women in this country. So why do I have to invite her to lunch in a non-political, bipartisan situation? Whereas others, and I don't know where you landed on this, which is where I'm going, others say, well, it's not Karen Andrews's fault that there's a policy issue being debated in the conservative parties that, you know, the, the, the left finds offensive. So we should probably just treat her as a human being. I found that quite interesting. Where did you land in that space? Because I, I do think in mixed, you know, um, gendered workplaces, these are the sorts of conversations that men and women are having all the time about, you know, oh, all those women don't get along, you know, they all hate each other, you know, that kind of commentary. I, I actually found it the hardest chapter to write, Helen, because I have been in enough discussions to know that the women, many women outside the parliament, just want us to support each other, work together, recognise we're in the minority and, you know, make it easier for everyone across the board. And I get that, but that isn't the conclusion that I could come to because, you know, this is this is not about um, a friendship group or being nice to the new girls at school. This is about determining the future directions of Australia and what policies are invested in and which ones aren't. So, you know, I'm I'm of the view that I think that when we, women are treated unfairly, 
everyone should stand up and speak out about that, regardless of whether they're from your party or not. But equally, if we had a male running against a male who absolutely believed that we should make tackling domestic violence a national emergency, that we should invest in, you know, women's economic freedom and security, that we should promote a whole lot of policies that would make a meaningful difference to the lives of Australian women and children running against a woman who would oppose those things, I'd back the bloke. And, you know, the sisterhood is important and is nice when it works, but the federal parliament is actually about more than friendships or supporting each other. It's about what are the outcomes for the women across Australia. And sometimes, you know, sometimes that comes down to people's views, not their gender. So, yeah, I disappointed and I knew that I was disappointing everyone who thought that I could just say, so what we're going to do, we're going to set up this cross-party women's group, we're all going to support each other and life will be better for all of us. That It's actually not as simple as that. No, and, and that's why I guess when you apply that to a real work situation, it, you know, it, it is it is challenging. Um, I want to talk about two more things just to give you um, where I'm going with this. One is ambition and the other is about the juggle. So let's talk about ambition. Young, attractive, clever, successful, ambitious. I mean, you just had it all going for you, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, h- how did you manage that issue of being seen as an ambitious woman? There's a tendency of some to see ambition in a woman as being pushy or demanding. And I don't think we need to cave into that, but I think we need to be mindful of it. So I think I think it's a good thing to be ambitious and it's a good thing to push for what you want next and what you think you're worthy of. Um, I guess my advice would be, I think as a woman, you need to be able to back up your case with, and this is why I'm the best person for that. And this is what I've done to prove it. And this is my past experience. I do feel like we have to be able to put a credible case, but I I love ambitious women. I love it. Like I love it when I have younger um, staff members who say to me, one day I want to do this or be here or do that. Um, I really love to see that. And I think that once you, when you put it out there, if you've got good employers or good mentors, they'll want to take you on that journey and support you to do it. Um, so I would absolutely encourage people. And I'm not saying that everybody has good mentors or good employers or people that aren't threatened by that. Um, so it depends on your circumstances. But I think it's worth putting it out there and seeing who will come on board and try and support you on the journey towards it. I would encourage women to do that and to try and find that support because I guarantee it's there somewhere. I completely agree with that. And I and I say it all the time. Tell me where you want to get to and I and anyone will help you get there. Um, it's that kind of clarity of thought that is helpful as a as a manager. Yeah. And I'm 100% sure that I was never, ever prepared to say it. Not that I was 100% ever clear what I want to do either, but, you know, even small advancements, if that's the job you want, just tell somebody, just own it because it's the worst thing that can happen. But what, 
sorry, I realise this is your interview, but I'm curious, why do you think that you were never comfortable to say it? Because you, you, you couldn't see the ambition for yourself or you just didn't want to put it out there or you felt you couldn't? I think being an ambitious female in media was was career limiting. Yeah. You know, it, it was not a popular thing to be. I mean, I think it was pretty obvious that I was, but I was nevertheless still giving a good crack at trying to hide it um, because it just it just made you unlikable and unlikely to be and more of a target. I, I don't think that's completely changed. Like I've heard, you know, in the last year, um, women in politics who are ambitious being described as having a sense of entitlement, um, which is why I do think that you've got to be able to back it up and you've got to be able to put the case beyond this is what I want or this is what I think I deserve to why I deserve it and what I've done to prove that. And maybe it's unfair that I think we have to do that more, but, yeah, because the pushy entitled woman is is still around, um, but I think it's it's getting a clearer path um, now. And the great thing is that, you know, there are more women who have made it to the other side to help the next generation come along. And that's what I think is really exciting to see. I absolutely love the chapter where you set out your reasons for stepping away from public life. I love the um, the way you set that chapter up and I love the conclusion of it. Um, so I urge anyone who is interested to go and buy the book for that chapter alone. Um, but I think the purpose of um, this podcast is to help others and I'm really keen to hear from you about how the juggle has gone since you did make the decision to to leave politics, noting that your awesome husband is a very high-profile political, not, not political, he was sort of, you know, um, very much a political he's a, commentator. He's a shock jock, Helen. Just call him what he is. He's a shock jock. He's the best top-rating <laughs> Adelaide radio announcer, yeah. breakfast announcer. Um, yeah. And uh, for complete disclosure, um, a colleague of mine for many years. <laughs> um, but how are you doing it now? And how are you pulling it all together? And are you having fun? I've just got a really good balance in my life at the moment that I am working on projects that I'm really passionate about and I love and so that gives me that the kind of rewarding element, which I really is what drives me. Um, so I'm doing enough of that. Um, but I'm also, our youngest child isn't at school until next year. So I still have, I have a day a week with Charlie where we go and have adventures. Um, I got his school enrolment forms this week. And so I'm half of me is mourning my baby is getting taken away from me. But the other half is like, oh my gosh, I've got this freedom coming next year where I'm going to have five days a week without children. And yeah, Dave, like Dave's crazy busy. He is working far too hard, but we kind of make it work. We absolutely make it work. But I think it comes back down to, you know, we like to think about who we should marry with our heart, but I just got lucky that it all fell into place. But I would say to people who do want demanding careers that it's a conversation you've got to have with your future partner. Like how do you expect the balance of child minding to go? Who's going to do what around the house? How important is money or taking time off work to be with your kids? I think they're issues 
that can make or break a, a marriage and communication. You know, um, we have, well, your listeners don't know, but Helen, you know from the beginning of this um, podcast recording that I'm not very good with technology. <laughs> and so, um, and Dave is worse, um, believe it or not. Um, so we actually have this huge whiteboard. One side of our fridge is a whiteboard that becomes a calendar and we just have to fill in who's doing what, where, so we can make sure that we can cover any gaps. And, you know, we've got four kids and two dogs living here Um so it's it's madness, but no, the balance works. I'm really happy. Like I, I'm so grateful. I got 15 years in the federal parliament, and I also have the chance to enjoy my children and my family, and um, and still think about next steps. So um, yeah, I don't want to rub it into everyone, but I, I'm I'm so grateful and so lucky and so happy with life. We do talk at FW quite often about the one course we're not running is how to marry the right bloke because most of the team do have excellent men in their lives and most of the women we mentor uh, have some issues in that regard. So it's quite clear that the path to having a bit of both is entirely dependent on who the partner is, whether the partner be male or female, of course. Well, and this is opening up a much larger, much different conversation. Um, but I do, I, I remember I had, well, it wasn't a discussion. It was a bit of an argument with one of my best friends where I talked about my first love. Um, you know, I was head over heels when I was in high school. And if he had asked me to move out with him, both get part-time jobs, get married, I would have said yes. Um, and my whole life would have been different. So it's not about any great wisdom on my part. It's just luck that instead he decided to cheat on me and <laughs> we broke up and um, my life is much better for it. So I just think, um, so the argument I had with my best friend was I was saying, I'm here because I'm lucky. Well, and Jamila would probably have a view on this, right? Yes. Having written a book, it's um, it's not just lucky. Not just lucky, yes. Um, whereas I consider a huge Luck has played a huge role in my life. Like there are so many points where my life could have gone in a very different direction and it wasn't because of wisdom. It wasn't because of, you know, careful consideration. It was because of the way life played out that I ended up where I was. Although my best friend put to me that that's all part of it, that I only fell in love with a bastard because um, I unconsciously wanted him to leave and me go on and do different things. Anyway, as I said, well, that's a different discussion. I'm just going to send you an updated copy or a new copy of Not Just Lucky because your her entire thesis is the opposite of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that is that there's no such thing. You work damn hard to um, create the world that you inhabit. So I have to correct you. In fact, not being lucky is a word we're actually not allowed to use at Future Women. Okay, sorry. And sorry, Jamila. <laughs> My final question is... You're still young. You still have, obviously are passionate about the country and policy and issues. Is there a possibility that you will look to have a, a senior leadership role um, on a national, a national or even a, a state basis in the future? Uh, probably not. Um, I see now I want to use the word luck um, and I'm trying not to, but I, I do think that in politics in particular, opportunities are pretty rare. 
and you grab them when they come up. But I think to expect that you could have the opportunity to serve twice when it's most convenient in your life is a pretty big ask. And I don't know that I would ever expect that to happen. But the other thing is I, I, I'm really enjoying the freedom from politics. I, I am actually a bit of an introvert. I don't really like leaving the house. So having a marginal seat, going and meeting and greeting and having coffee and tea and shaking hands and going to functions every night is something I'm grateful that I got to do, but I don't miss it. But I do look to having a bigger job, uh, particularly once Charlie starts school, then I'm, I, I'd like to look at having a big job again and maybe changing the balance in our household, who's working most, who's doing that. I think that's something we'll look at. I just don't know that it will be politics. Um, I don't want to put people off of going into politics. It's like the best thing that I ever did, the best job I ever had. But there's something really nice about being free. I did school pickup in my Ugg boots the other day and I was like, my warm feet are more important than my dignity and you don't have the whole community judging you and whispering about you and talking about whether or not you're fit to be re-elected. Um, I find that really liberating. I'm really happy um, but really grateful that I got the chance. Kate, thank you so much for giving up some of your time. I know talking about yourself is not your favourite thing to do, but um, I'm glad that I've dragged you out of hibernation to talk leadership issues and thank you for sharing some of your stories. And I know that many of the listeners will appreciate learning from you. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me and I hope the good people of South Australia look after you, Helen. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson.